0: Good morning. Well, even though we may not prefer to, and even though I probably would have slept better all week long, if we hadn't, we need to talk about politics here this morning. Right, we're uh, under four weeks away from an election. And as Reformed Christians what we call ourselves, Reformed Christians, we actively engage in every aspect of life, and that includes politics. And maybe that means especially politics, since the political systems are often the ways that God has designed for him to bring justice and goodness and security into this world. And so we need to talk politics for a little bit here in church, because many of us as Christians, as Jesus followers are not talking and posting and writing very sanctified when it comes to politics lately. Right? So, so you just heard the fruit of the Spirit. The behaviors that should characterize all of us as followers of Jesus Christ. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. If you go back to Galatians, though, and and read just before Paul gives us that list of the fruit of the Spirit, he also lists the opposing acts of the flesh. That list includes things like hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy. Now, look at those lists on the screen or think about them as you're frantically writing them in your outline. And ask yourself, answer this question in your mind. Which one of those lists best characterizes our politics and our political conversations nowadays? I think the answer is pretty, pretty simple, isn't it? Right? When, when it comes to our political conversations and our political choices, the first thing many of us do as Christians is we set aside the fruit of the Spirit. We, we, we set them aside, and then we willingly dive into those acts of the flesh. We choose to step down into this world's ungodly level of conversation instead of showing them a better way, instead of showing them a godly way. So over the past, I think it was about two weeks ago, a pastor friend of mine from in town here, he sent me a link to a TED Talk that he thought I would enjoy. It was a TED Talk by a woman named Katherine Schultz, and she's the author of a book entitled Being Wrong. She calls herself a wrongologist, okay? And, and she described, this was seven years ago, this TED Talk, she described very clearly the way that we treat people who don't agree with us when we think that we are always right. Okay? If you think that you're right, how do you treat people who disagree with you? I, want you, I loaded the clip up on here. Listen to her for, the, for just a minute and a half. See if perhaps you have followed this pattern yourself.
1: Think for a moment about what it means to feel right. It means that you think that your beliefs just perfectly reflect reality. And when you feel that way, you've got a problem to solve, which is how are you gonna explain all of those people who disagree with you? It turns out most of us explain those people the same way by resorting to a series of unfortunate assumptions. The first thing we usually do when someone disagrees with us is we just assume they're ignorant. You know, they don't, they don't have access to the same information that we do, and when we generously share that information with them, they're going to see the light and come on over to our team. When that doesn't work, when it turns out those people have all the same facts that we do and they still disagree with us, then we move on to a second assumption, which is that they're idiots. They have all the right pieces of the puzzle and they are too moronic to put them together correctly. And when that doesn't work, when it turns out that people who disagree with us have all the same facts we do and are actually pretty smart, then we move on to a third assumption. They know the truth and they are deliberately distorting it for their own malevolent purposes. So this is a catastrophe. Attachment to our own rightness keeps us from preventing mistakes when we absolutely need to And causes us to treat each other terribly
0: That progression look a little bit familiar from ignorant to idiot to evil our politicians and our political parties are full-blown into that, into that evil category. They're accusing each other of crimes and conspiracies. And sadly, many of us as Christians have followed them right down that path as we speak and share hateful statements, character assassinations. You and I need to recognize that those words, whether they're spoken or typed or forwarded, or shared, are not evidence of the fruit of the Spirit growing within us. Right? They they don't promote any of the five core values that we have been working through, if you've been here over the previous five weeks. Right? Unity, and honor, honesty, compassion, humility. We need, God says, we as followers of Jesus Christ, need to live differently. We need to speak differently. And we need to do political things differently. Now, if you're bracing yourself for my declaration of which party you should vote for on November 6th, you can relax. Okay? You can set aside your Republican or your Democratic talking points that have been honed to a sharp point. As followers of Jesus Christ... You and I need to reset our roots in the one place that really matters. Our identifying affiliation is with God. Not any political party. Not even our country. It's with God alone. And if we think that God is on, one, on the side of one political party over the other... And I've heard it both ways. I've I've heard somebody say, you can't be a Democrat and be a Christian. And I've also heard someone say, you can't be a Republican and be a Christian. I've heard it both. If you believe that God is on on one party side and not the other, then we need to step back and hear what God has to say, because that simply is not true. Okay, take out your Bibles, turn with me to Joshua chapter 5. Joshua 5, it's found on page 172 in the Bibles in front of you. Because if ever there was a time when God was going to be on one political side and not the other, if ever he was going to be on one team and off the other team, this would be it. In in Joshua chapter 5, the whole nation of Israel has just finished wandering in the desert for 40 years. They've crossed the Jordan River and they've set foot for the first time in the promised land. The land that God had committed to giving them. Joshua is their leader. And my guess is as as their camp there just over the Jordan River, Joshua is still hearing the words of God. The words that God spoke directly to him back in chapter 1. God told him, I will give you every place you set your foot. God told him, no one will be able to stand against you. God said to him, be strong and courageous because you're gonna lead these people into the land that you will inherit, the land that I swore to give to you. And so so here's Joshua and this inexperienced army of Israel camped just outside the impenetrable walls of the city of Jericho. And the night before they were going to attack, Joshua goes for a walk that evening around Jericho again. Just to scout it out one more time. And listen to what happens to him. Verses 13 through 15. Now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied. But as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Joshua then fell face down on the ground in reverence and asked him, What message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. So Joshua comes face to face with the commander of the Lord's army army. And he asks the same political question that you and I ask each other, that we ask the people around us when we dare have the conversation. Whose side are you on? Are you on my side or are you on the other side? Are you on Jericho's side or Israel's side? Because it has to be one or the other. Are you a Democrat or a Republican? Because it has to be one or the other. And this angel commander's reply isn't at all what we would expect because the answer is clear and easy, isn't it? Of course God will pick Joshua's side. Of course he's on Israel's side. These are his chosen people, and Joshua is his chosen leader. But that's not the answer we get. His surprising one-word answer to Joshua's question, whose side are you on? Are you on my side or are you on their side? The answer is, neither. Neither. Because God doesn't pick sides. He isn't on Israel's side, he isn't on Jericho's side. Just like he isn't a Democrat and he isn't a Republican. God is way beyond all of these divisions that we make. These divisions that mean so much to us and we think are so important And we don't get to shrink God down to fit into our little categories. And we don't get to ask God whose side he is on. No, God gets to ask the question, whose side are you on? Because God doesn't choose our side. We choose his side. So if we're ever asked where our allegiance lies... The correct answer for each one of us as a follower of Jesus Christ is not either Democrat or Republican. Instead, above every other affiliation in our lives, we claim our allegiance to Jesus Christ. We choose His side. We pursue His platform in life. We stand for His purposes. We speak His words. We establish His values. We vote His priorities. And we've been hearing, if you've been here, we've been hearing what his priorities are for the past five weeks, right? Do justly and love mercy. Walk humbly with God. Pursue unity and honor and honesty and compassion and humility. Love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. We must choose God's side. We must pursue His purposes. Okay, that's a nice theological concept for us to talk about sitting here on a Sunday morning. How do we practically apply that into this political world? Well, to start, we need to understand one foundational truth very, very clearly. God's kingdom does not depend at all on our political system. Okay, God has made it clear that his kingdom will come to this earth through the church, not through our government. Not through any government. Right, so if we have put our hope for our nation, if we have put our hope for this world into the hands of a political system, into the hands of a political party, into the hands of the men and women who will hold office, then we gravely have misplaced our trust. We have gravely misplaced our hope. Because God's kingdom will not come when we finally get the right laws and finally get the right leaders. No. God's kingdom comes when we learn how to love. God's kingdom comes when his people live and love like Jesus did. God's kingdom comes through the church. And when any political party tells you that, that the church is in danger, this just might be the end of the church if the other party gets elected, that means they don't know much about God's plan. They haven't read much in this book about God's power. Because God's transforming kingdom is coming through the church. And He tells us that the gates of hell will not be able to stand against the church, will not be able to stand against His kingdom. That's where our hope lies. That's where the power comes from. So, what do we, the church, then do? Do we we separate ourselves? Do we make sure our faith and politics never intersect? No, not at all. But the Bible gives us a beautiful picture of what that intersection looks like in, in one more Old Testament passage. Take out your Bibles again if you put them away. Turn with me this time to Jeremiah 29. Jeremiah 29, page 641. Here in Jeremiah 29... God sends instructions to the people of Israel, the people of Israel who have been carried into captivity to Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar. And these exiles who have been hauled out of Jerusalem, hauled out of Israel, carried to Babylon, don't know what to do. They had believed that God was on their side, that God had chosen their side. They had believed that God's kingdom was going to come through their politics, through their city, through Jerusalem, through their nation. And now, their city lay in ruins. Now their nation had been destroyed and all of their political and religious leaders that they had put their hope and trust in, they were either dead or they were captives right along with them. So they needed a new understanding and what it meant to live as God's people now that they were living as captives in a foreign land. And this is God's message to them. Pick it up at verse four, just verses four through nine. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons. Give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it. Because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you de- deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. Their situation, thousands of years ago, really isn't that much different from our situation today. Today. You and I, too, live in occupied territory. We are citizens of the kingdom of God, living as captives in a foreign land, in a pagan land, in a land that's broken by sin and evil and the power of Satan. So how, then, do we live in this broken system, in this ungodly system, well, notice, first of all, that th- this passage does not allow us just to separate ourselves from this world. There were prophets and diviners, it says, who were telling these exiles. They were saying to the exiles, hey, you know what? I know you just arrived here in Babylon as captives, but God's going to set you free really soon. So don't worry about setting up, you know, setting down stakes here, putting in roots into the ground, because you're about to leave. He's going to bring you back to Jerusalem. You just need to sit tight for a little while, and God's gonna give you freedom again. And isn't that tempting for us as Christians too? When we see the overwhelming amount of brokenness and evil in this world, it's so tempting for us just to sit tight and wait for Jesus to come back again. Because Jesus is gonna make all those wrongs right. He's gonna fix everything when he comes back. And so it's easiest just to huddle up in our religious communities and wait for Jesus to come (laughs) Jesus, you make everything right. That's not what he allows them to do in Babylon. God commands them to get involved in Babylon, to engage meaningfully with the culture around them and the community around them. And God says the same thing to you and to me about this world right here. We're called to represent him into this broken world. As followers of Jesus Christ, we are commanded to engage the world and the culture around us. Right? So in verses 5 and 6, he says to these exiles in Babylon, he says, build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry, have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. In other words, he's letting them know you're going to be here a while. You're gonna be here long enough that when you plant your garden in the spring, you'll be there to eat it in the fall. You'll be there long enough that when you start building your house, you'll be around to see your house being finished being built. In fact, you're gonna be here long enough that that the kids that you're gonna have born right now, they're gonna grow up, they're gonna get married, you're gonna have grandkids while you're still here. You're gonna be here a while. So don't put your lives on hold. Don't, don't disengage from this society and this culture. Saddle in. Get involved. Be an influence right where I placed you. And that's how you and I live as reformed Christians. That's what it means to be reformed. We can't isolate ourselves in some kind of safe religious bubble and ignore the culture all around us. We must be fully engaged as God's representatives to this world, and that includes the world of politics. As much as maybe we wish that we could, we can't simply ignore it. As citizens of God's kingdom, we must be engaged with the kingdom of this world around us. But even more than that, God actually calls us to work for the well-being of this culture that we're a part of. We need to serve it, we need to be involved in it, and we need to work to improve it. Right, so Jeremiah challenges these exiles in verse 7. These are really stunning words. Hear them. Hear them if you were in exile, just conquered and carried into captivity. And Jeremiah says to you, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you in exile. Pray to the Lord for it. Not against it. Pray to the Lord for it. Because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Wow. You know, if anyone... If anyone should be involved in politics, whether it's as a vocation or simply fulfilling their responsibility to knowledgeably vote, Christians should, especially those of us who call us Reformed Christians. It's our responsibility here. It's our responsibility to bring God's principles into our system through prayerful, discerning involvement. And so we vote according to God's commands to do justly and to love mercy and to love God with all our hearts and to love our neighbors as ourselves. As Christians, we pray for our culture. We pray for our world. And then we get involved to bring God's kingdom into it more fully. the, The Bible gives us example after example after example of people who did exactly that. People who engage and improve the political culture around them. So way back in the book of Genesis, you have Joseph, who serves as second in command to Pharaoh in Egypt. You have Daniel and his three friends in Babylon, who heard this command that we just read from Jeremiah. And what did they do? They became rulers in Babylon. Daniel, too, became second in command behind the king. Esther... Remember her story? She becomes queen, and she saves her people from genocide. Nehemiah becomes cupbearer to a foreign king, King Cyrus. The cupbearer is one of the most trusted advisors of the king. In the New Testament, there's various Jesus followers, like Nicodemus, who are leaders of the the Jewish ruling class. Theophilus, the recipient of both of Luke's books, he was an official in the Roman government. A follower of Jesus. In Acts and Romans, we meet Erastus, the, the, the director of public works in the city of Corinth, politically engaged. Jesus' followers engage their world and improve it for his kingdom purposes. And we, we learn from these biblical examples three more specifics, three specific callings To those of us who follow God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. It is our job as followers of Jesus Christ, first of all, to remind the government of its place. So when earthly governments take a hold of power and authority that isn't theirs, when they take a hold of power and authority that belongs only to God, We as citizens of the kingdom of God serve as witnesses that there is a greater power, there is a greater authority that they must submit to and that we must obey. So Daniel, in the Old Testament, when he's commanded to bow down to the statue that King Darius set up, and when he's prohibited from praying to any other god other than Darius himself, what does Daniel do? He refuses to bow down to the statue and he prays to God Almighty just like he always had. And when the king calls him before, he says, I can't do anything other than that because that's what my God commands me to do. In the New Testament, Peter is teaching about Jesus in the temple and the Jewish authorities haul him into court and they end up telling him, wagging their finger at him and say, you are now prohibited from talking about Jesus in the temple anymore. What's his answer to them? He said to them, I must obey God rather than men. Watched right out to the temple and talked about Jesus. Reminding the government of its place. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Christian pastor during Germany in World War II. As the Nazi party gained more and more power and authority, it exerted its influence over the Christian church as well. But they demanded that all pastors in the church... Swear this oath I swear that I will be Loyal and obedient to Adolf Hitler The leader of the German Reich and people And you know what Dietrich Bonhoeffer did? He refused He said government That's not your place That's not where I swear my allegiance That's not who I bow down to His ultimate Allegiance was to God Not to any government, not to any leader and he reminded the government of its place in the world. You and I need to have the courage when the government oversteps its bounds to remind the government that it never was and never will be God. And with that priority clearly declared, we need to help our government both understand humility, humanity and hope. Humanity and hope. Because our faith gives us great insight into both of those things. And our government leaders need to know that insight from us. You and I, by studying this word, by, by knowing who God is and who we are, we know the power of evil in this world and the influence of Satan. We know that hu- about human fallenness and human depravity that needs to be kept in check. We know that people, because of their fallen nature, will abuse each other, will abuse the system. We know that people will, pur- will naturally pursue their own selfish gains at the expense of the poor and the defenseless and the voiceless. That's what our fallen nature does. Knowing those sad truths and, and letting our government know those sad truths about who we are is vital in pursuing justice in our society. And yet, at the same time, we also know where true hope comes from. True hope for us as a country, true hope for us as individuals, does not come from us figuring out how to get everything right. Our only hope comes from God. We often believe that the government can, given given the right answers, given the right tools, given the right people can create a kind of heaven on earth if we just get it right. Right policies, right procedures. You and I know that's not true. We know that the government is not going to save us. Psalm 121, I lift my eyes up to the hill. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord. Maker of heaven and earth. It doesn't say my help comes from Washington. My help comes from the Lord. Maker of heaven and earth. Our hope is in the Lord moving through his people, living out unity and honor and honesty and compassion and humility and making a difference in this world. And with that hope for our world, clearly in our hearts, clearly in our minds, we then invite the government to join God's mission, to join us in his kingdom purposes. You see, God has set up earthly systems like our political system in order to to work towards his kingdom goals. That's what they're there for. And it's our job as Christians to invite every level of government to fulfill its God-given purpose. God wants the government to defend those who can't defend themselves, to protect the widows and the orphans, to give a voice to those who are voiceless, to care for the poor, to bring justice to those who have been wronged and to those who have done the wrong, to carry the sword and to use it wisely, to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God. That's what he designed the government to do. And none of those things are either Republican or Democrat issues. They are God issues. And sometimes it's the Democrats who champion what God desires. Sometimes it's the Republicans who champion what God desires. Sometimes it's both of them. Sometimes it's neither of them. And it must always be us who champion God's values. That means as God-first followers, we do the work of engaging our Christian minds while we vote. It means we prioritize God's purposes in God's politics. That means we filter our political conversations, what comes out of our mouth, through the fruit of the Spirit, like we talked about at the beginning. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, and we show this world around us. That is another way to talk politics. There's another way to live, and it's a godly way, and it's a gracious way, and it's a fruit of the spirit way. It means we evaluate our candidates through that same filter. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and we avoid for ourselves and for our leaders the acts of the flesh, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy. And we vote for those who will help us to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with our God as individuals and as society. And you know what? It also means that you and I will not be controlled by fear. We will not be overwhelmed by fear with what we see and what we hear. Because you and I know that no matter what happens in our nation or in our world, God is still God. And in the end, His kingdom will come and His will will be done. He just wants it to come right now through us. Let's let him do that. Would you pray with me? God, we want your kingdom to come and your will to be done. And when we pray those words and when we share that desire, you then show us and command us and call us to live in ways that will do just that. You are eager for your kingdom to come. And you will bring your kingdom to this place, to this earth, to our neighborhoods and to our nation when we live out your desires and your commands. When we allow ourselves to be the avenues by which this world sees your face, hears your words spoken. Jesus, we want to be your advocates here. Forgive us for all the times when we, when we step down into the types of discussions that hurt you, when we choose to set aside the fruit of the Spirit, and we lower ourselves to a godless level of conversation. Father, may you instill the the filter of the fruit of the Spirit. In our minds and in our hearts, to keep those values always in front of us. Forgive us even for the times when we just choose to plug our ears and close our eyes and let this world go. Give us the courage to engage in your name for your purposes for your priorities, for your platforms, so that your kingdom might come and your will may be done. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.